welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello, and welcome to Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Terry Ritchie, Partner and Vice President at Cardinal Point Management. Cardinal Point is a firm that specializes in dealing with U.S.-Canadian cross-border issues. I brought Terry on the show today to talk about tricks and traps that Canadian business owners are exposed to when they are also U.S. tax residents. With that, here's my interview with Terry. So, Terry, thanks for taking time. Thanks for having me, Jason. Always a pleasure to talk to you. So, Terry Ritchie of Cardinal Point Management, tell us about what it is you do. So, uh, well, we've known each other for a, for a bit of time. I've been been practicing for about 34 years um, in the cross-border financial planning space. Um, had lots of experience, obviously, given the, given the years. And uh, myself and many of my colleagues at Cardinal Point, I often use the term, we're, we're not just book smart, we live it. So I, I live in Phoenix and, and in Calgary. Uh, we have offices in California, Florida, Phoenix, Toronto, and, and Calgary. All my kids are dual citizens. I'm married to a U.S. citizen. So the issues that we often deal with on behalf of our clients are issues that we personally have to confront and deal with as well. Yeah, so it's pretty much not bragging to say that your firm is probably the preeminent cross-border financial planning firm in the country. Right? I, yeah, we can say that now. We're certainly we, we made some we made an acquisition at the beginning of January, so we are certainly the largest firm in this space. We manage about a billion dollars of assets. There's 28 of us now, so we've had significant growth over the last seven years that I've been a partner at, at Cardinal Point. So yeah, it's been a good ride for a while. Fantastic. And of course, we know each other for many years and of course got directed to you for cross-border help a long time ago. And you've been super gracious with your time and you're gonna, you're gracious enough to agree to come on this show. So I appreciate that. Welcome. So Terry, let's talk about from the Canadian business owner standpoint. Well, before we get there, Americans living in Canada, what is it they need to know about their obligations to the IRS and the U.S. and the, to America in general? So it's a really good question. And, you know, for, for many years, I think the majority of Americans in Canada probably are, are aware that, that irrespective of, of where they generate income, where they hold assets, where they die, um, that they are considered to be U.S. residents for income tax purposes. So there's a requirement to comply with U.S. tax rules. We'll talk about some of the programs that the IRS has come out with that relate to helping people like that get compliant. So, you know, there used to be lots of Canadians that just what I call keep their head in the sand, hoping that it would never, never you know, rear its ugly head. Lots but the problem, do, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, and we'll talk about that. So a lot still do, and and um, but we'll talk about that. We'll talk about it. In fact, why why many many are 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 getting compliant, and so we'll talk about that in just a, just a few minutes here. But there are apparently are nine million Americans that live outside of the United States, so uh, maybe just shy of a million Americans that live in Canada, but. We often hear the term U.S. resident for tax purposes, and a U.S. resident for tax purposes would be a citizen. So if you were born in the U.S., physically born there, or even if you had, if you were born in Canada, but you were born to a U.S. parent, or that parent after the age of 14 was living in the U.S. for, for five years, you're automatically effectively a U.S. citizen as well. That happened in my case. My uh, two of my four kids were born in the U.S. and, and two of the uh, the other two were, were born in Canada uh, by virtue of um, their mother being a U.S. citizen and, and living in the U.S. after the age of 14 for longer than five years. They automatically become U.S. citizens. So that's all of my kids travel on you know, two passports. 
and our dual citizen. So a U.S. citizen is a resident of the U.S. for income tax purposes. And the other person, the other two sort of areas where folks could be treated as a U.S. resident for tax purposes would be those that hold green cards. So if you um, apply for a green card and then get a green card, then under U.S. rules, generally, we would treat you as a U.S. resident for income tax purposes as well. And there are a number of folks that we bump into on occasion that are U.S. green card holders that live in Canada, and that can pose some problems from an immigration perspective and certainly from a tax perspective if they're out of the U.S. for longer than a year. That's a whole other discussion, so we have to be aware of those issues. And then the other person that could be treated as a U.S. resident for income tax purposes would be our traditional snowbird, who is meets a, a test in the U.S. called the Substantial Presence Test. And that's a test where an individual spends generally at least four months of the year consistently in the U.S. for three years in a row. And you go through a calculation. It's, you take the number of days in the current year. You add one-third of the days in the year before that and one-sixth of the days the year before that. And, that and that's one of the most important things to take away to start from this thing is that a lot of snowbirds think it's 180 days or something like that in general per year. But they don't realize it's a rolling calendar. And Correct. you know, you go down there six months, five, six months of the year at a time, by year two, you're offside. Yeah, correct. And so there's a requirement. Now, I will say that the IRS, and you'll, you've often heard me say this speaking at conferences and, and from our other discussions, that I'm also an enrolled agent with the Internal Revenue Service. It's a specific tax designation conferred by Treasury. and We do a significant amount of U.S. tax work. The IRS is nowhere near as, they don't poke and prod as much as CRA does. So there's lots of things, not to suggest that we encourage clients to be evasive or to be sloppy, but the IRS doesn't does not challenge taxpayers generally on the filing of the 8840 form, which is the, which is the form that most snowbirds are required to file that meets the substantial presence test. And it'll be interesting to see next year for this tax year what's going to happen for those snowbirds that are now in the U.S. for longer than 183 days from an immigration perspective this year because of our lovely COVID-19 challenges. Yeah. So there were some there were some guidelines that was a revenue procedure that the IRS brought out I guess two weeks ago now that recognizes that there are folks that uh, happen to be trapped in the U.S. because of their inability to get back to Canada, and so that's going to put them offside for the substantial presence test, and it's going to put them offside for U.S. residency purposes. So how do we file for next year? And so. I've before the rulings came out, I talked to a few clients or people that just called and said, you know, what are we going to do here? We can't get back. And again, as we, we talked about before, you know, when we look at cross-border financial planning, you know, tax is a piece and immigration is a piece. And sometimes they don't align together. They're two separate no. agencies. And so we have to be cognizant of the fact that the immigration rules might say one thing, but the tax rules might say another thing. So my suspicion is that, again, we have snowbirds. Again, we had citizens residents, green card holders are residents. Now we've got these snowbirds that are trapped down in the U.S. And are they residents? And generally under this, these rules, they, they would be. So next year, it's a matter of whether we file the, the uh, closer tax exception statement, indicate the days and everything's fine. Or generally what we used to do in the old days, if somebody mistakenly was in the U.S. for longer than 183 days in a calendar year, we couldn't file the 8840. So we'd have to file a non-resident return, a 1040 NR, and then take a treaty election to tie break them as a resident back to Canada. Now, in that case, um, as long as they have no U.S. source income, there's no U.S. tax result. There's just a filing obligation to disclose that with a treaty disclosure, another form that we have to file. But also, we have to then recognize that if they are a U.S. resident, we typically, as a protective measure, will also file their FinCENs, their foreign bank account reports, and things like that as well. So it can be somewhat yeah. intrusive. So to sum it up, 
bottom line is if you are any one of those categories, American born citizen, uh, child of an American born citizen, you are holding a green card living out of the US, which <laughs> that could be its own issue, the snowbird issue, you are considered potentially a US, US citizen for tax purposes or US tax resident, in which case, unlike every country with the exception of Eritrea, yeah, you have Eritrea. to file taxes. You have to file taxes no matter where you are in the world, right? That's correct. Uh, on worldwide on, income. On a worldwide income. So unlike Canada, where once you leave and you've done your last terminal filing, you're gone. And by the way, I mean, when I say Canada, I mean every other country in the world with the exception of Eritrea and the U.S., Unlike that typical residency-based tax code, you essentially have to file no matter what you do. You could have zero assets in the U.S., but you're still obligated to file in the U.S., correct? Correct. And again, when we talk about income tax, we have to go broader than that because in many cases, our, our issues also have to look at gift tax and estate tax as well. Exactly. There are yeah. many, many, we have many clients that, that have left the U.S. years ago and, and have no requirements to go back and, and, and will never go back. But yet, by virtue of the fact that they have citizenship, they have to be cognizant of the fact that when they die, if they exceed a certain threshold in the U.S., which is $11.58 million, there's a state tax exposure that would have to be dealt with on the U.S. side, even if they have not a single penny of assets in the U.S. or spent any right. time there. So unless they've gone through the process of renunciation, which is a whole other subject. Um, we'll get to that <laughs> at the <okay>. end. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the gift and estate tax, and I mean, even something as simple as gifting large, you know, some money to their family members is subject to the U.S. tax regime, right? So I want to give my kids $25,000 if I'll pay for their wedding, right? If there's a possibility that if I'm a U.S. tax resident or they are, there's potential gift tax implications there. We talk a lot about it. Is it, a, is it a big deal? And today it's not that big of a deal. But again, in many cases for our listeners, you know, I'm going to spew a lot of crap out here. And at the end of the day, a lot of this is just the fact that there's a greater administrative and compliance that we need to be aware of. There may not be a net tax result, but there's going to be this additional burden here. So for for example, on the gift tax side. So on the on the gift tax side, many years ago, and, and some clients forget about these, these numbers do change. They don't change an awful lot. But many years ago, the annual gift tax exclusion amount to your anybody other than your spouse, um, your non-citizen U.S. spouse was $10,000. Over the years, it's been 11, 12, 13. Yeah. It's now $15,000. It's been that way the last, I think, three years. So if you, in your example there, if you were to go ahead and pay for the wedding on behalf of your son or daughter, if you paid for it, even though your son or daughter benefited from that and you're a U.S. person who paid for it, there's no gift tax implications there whatsoever. Yeah. But if I go ahead and give 25000 to my U.S. citizen son, that's a gift. I think it's important to go back to what you said about, about a tax result, right? Like at the end of the day, there may not be any tax owing here, but there's a filing obligation that you have to comply with that if offside could result in tax implications or penalties, which can be penalty. more onerous. Yeah. 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 I just couldn't in that case, because I think it's important for the listeners because it, we're talking about it and I just want to make them aware of what, what the requirements for filing would be. So in that case, there would be a $10,000 taxable gift that would be in, that would be required to be filed. So we get 25000 minus 15 is 10. So we'd file what's called an IRS form 709. That's the, the gift tax return. But the gift tax exemption that's eligible for any taxable gifts is the same number as the lifetime exemption or the state tax exemption. So $11.58 million. So that's the lifetime amount. So, so at the end of the day, for many people, you're not going to pay any money out of your pocket. There may be a, a, an income tax in Canada because in Canada, we, have, we don't have a gift tax. If we sell something that's got up in value, so to create the money yeah. to give. Yeah. So we have that issue. So, and those are not offsetting credits for US or Canadian purposes either. Gift no. tax. Or 
No. So overall, we've covered thus far already that there's an obligation. It may not be taxation. Let's talk about what the penalties look like. If I fail to comply with this, because this, this is really the the, care, the the stick here we're talking about. So let's talk about the penalties here, because that's the stick we have to deal with here. And, and they can be, you know, in Canada, we kind of get a little bit lax where, oh, you know, I didn't owe any tax, so I didn't bother filing or whatever it is. So some people go years without filing, which is not a good practice. In the U.S., it's a different story. Tell us how that differs. It is a different story. And it's actually a story over the last couple of years where we've seen the IRS being a bit more yuckier in terms of imposing these penalties. Because in the old days, there are a lot of things that we could just we could get away with on the IRS side. And it's still in, in many cases, if you can if you can prove to the IRS that that you weren't aware of what you were doing, in many cases, and that's still the case today, um, the IRS does provide some level of grace. If you can sort of plead ignorance and, and indicate that you've taken steps, that you weren't aware of these issues and you've taken steps to ensure that, that you're not going to make these state mistakes again, in many cases, you can get a first-time abatement. So, um, mm. for example, a number of years ago, I was working with a, a client who, uh, who set up a partnership in the U.S. and to run some of his U.S. business operations um, aligned with his Canadian company. And um, he had his accountant appear do it deal with it all and didn't know what they were doing. And so they heard me speak someplace and I, I sort of got involved and did some consulting for them. And there's a requirement for them to file partnership return and schedule K-1s and, and things like that. And they were late in doing so. And they were late in doing so because the, the client didn't have a taxpayer identification number and things like that. So there's a bunch of things that, that made this process, made them become late. So we went ahead and when you file a partnership return, in most cases, most companies in the U.S., LLCs, S-corporations, partnerships, they're all flow-through entities. So at the end of the day, anything that the partnership or the entity generates generally flows through to the individual's tax return and they pay income tax on that result. So mm -hmm. the partnership return is going to have a zero result, okay? So, But it was late. And so in the old days, we'd file it late, no tax results. The income tax would be picked, the income would be picked up or the loss would be picked up on the tax return. In this case, in his case, it was a 1040NR and life is good. Well, surprise, surprise, this was like a number of years ago, uh, not very long ago, that uh, we ended up getting a penalty, a couple of penalties imposed on these returns, the partnership returns being late, which I hadn't seen for forever. So I was able to successfully just call the IRS and get the first year abated. You know, again, pleading ignorance, they didn't have an ITIN, that's why it was late, blah, blah, blah. And the second one, because we I think we filed like a 14 and a 15 year. So they they went at the same time. The 15 one, they they were a little difficult on the penalty, but it took me a year and I got this I got the 15 one done. So what I'm hearing and what we've seen and talking to other practitioners is that even though there are many requirements where you have to file a form because you have a trust, you have a, an entity, you did a gift, you made a gift, but there's not going to be any income tax result from that, but you didn't file the form on a timely basis, they're going to come back and impose a penalty. So, so what are we looking at in terms of monetary penalties? Because some of these can be pretty substantial. Well, they can, but it depends on what they are. And again, my 34 years of practice is something that we don't see an awful lot. So let's talk about maybe mm -hmm. some of the forms that would have to that, that generally would need to be filed by business owners or traditional Canadians okay. in Canada that have U.S. obligations to file. So generally, if you're filing a traditional 1040 return and you've got no tax only because of the application of the foreign tax credits. And or 1040 is the basic personal one, yep. correct? Yep. Yep. And you've got no tax owing and you didn't file an extension. You just filed it late. You're not going to get a, a, a bill from the IRS to file that return late. If there's no tax owing, you're not going to pay any, you're not going to file a late filing penalty. However, if you've got some tax owing, there will be a late filing penalty 
and a interest composed on that as well. And um, you know, there are online calculators that, that sort of go through that. And those penalties are going to be based on how much tax is owing and the period of time since the tax was due. That's the 1040. That's the personal side. What yeah. else are we looking at? But for for most for most people that would be worried about penalties, it, it would be related to the not timely filing information returns. And the most common types of information returns that might be there that we would see for taxpayers might be the 3520 or the 3520A. And the 3520 and the 3520A relate to the filing of disclosures relating to foreign trusts. And so if you are somebody that is the uh, trustee or settler of a, of a trust in Canada, if you are uh, a beneficiary of a foreign of a trust out of Canada, if you inherited money from an individual, from a foreign individual, a Canadian, or a company, you have to disclose that stuff. And if you don't disclose those, that information on these forms, the penalties that can be imposed can be as high as 35% of what wasn't disclosed. And yeah. we were talking earlier, uh, before we started here, about the implication yep. related to whether a TFSA is a trust for for tax purposes. We saw some rules in March that came out uh, from the IRS that recognized that RDSPs, forgive me, and RESPs are not considered trusts under under U.S. rules. And, and in, there are many practitioners that would file these 3520s and penalties were imposed and things like that. And there's, there's a mechanism now to recover those taxes. So there's those. When I was at an accounting firm I worked at many, many years ago, there was an individual who set up an RCA, Retirement Compensation, Compensation. Arrangement. Yep. And uh, under U.S. rules, that would be deemed a, a trust, and so therefore it wasn't filed, and it was millions of dollars in there. And so while I was at oh, this boy. other firm, it took us a year and a half to sort of try to get that abated and, and reduced and things like that. So that was significant. For business owners, though, where it can get really mucky is that if they are folks that haven't been compliant and have now chosen to get compliant, we'll talk maybe about that a little bit later here, why it's important to do that. Mm -hmm is that uh, if you have an interest in a Canadian company, their obligations to disclose to the IRS what's going on there. And there's specific types of IRS forms. The most specific one is what we call the 5471 form. That's effectively a financial statement that relates to the activities that are going on in the company in Canada. And um, the failure to file those forms is $10,000 that can be imposed. And I've heard of- Per year, correct? Per, per year, yeah. So if you have to yeah. go back and you, you're going through the streamline program, you're going to go back and follow the last three years returns, it's likely that you're going to go ahead and get a penalty of $10,000 a year for each of those years. Plus, there's likely going to be some tax there because the things that we that we can get away with in Canada from a deferral perspective, we can't get away from with that on the U.S. side. And that's where there's a big, big mismatch between you know what we can do in Canada as a business owner sending, sending up a company versus what we can do on the U.S. side. If you're a physician in Canada or dentist in Canada, your buddy who you work with, he set up a company in, in Ontario, Alberta, and mm -hmm. he's going to make some money. He's going to pay himself a reasonable salary. He's going to maybe pay out some dividends, he's gonna pay staff, and he's going to have a profit. Okay, And that profit's going to be what? It's going to be taxed at a separate rate in Canada, and it's going to accumulate in that company, right? And that's what we do in Canada. That just makes sense. Can't do that on the U.S. side. Because in the U.S., in the US generally 90%, more than 90% of the companies in the U.S. are all flow-throughs. Again, S-corporations or LLCs. Yep. Yeah. And so, so the IRS says, hey, if you're going to do that, Jason, what we're going to do here is, is we're going to tax you as if that income was distributed. And because it wasn't distributed, we're going to make you pay tax the highest marginal rates. So when Trump became president in late 2017, we had some significant U.S. tax changes. And one of the changes that came into play... <laughs> And affected many. And the reason this tax came into play was we call the transition tax or GILTI. And GILTI stands for the Global Intangible Low Tax Income. Yeah, and interesting acronym. That was a very wise, that was very uh, yeah. telling pick of a name. Well, there's lots, you know, the, the IRS or the U.S. has 
acronyms for everything, right? So we got the CARES Act, the CURE Act just passed. The Jobs Act, um, yeah, I know. Yeah, tech. So what happened is, you know, Apple and GE and Alphabet or Google, you know, they have these massive operations, uh, you know, outside of the United States. Yeah. They're paying tax these little jurisdictions. So Trump's like, hey, we need to encourage these folks to repatriate that income and pay tax here. And so they gave us a year to sort of pay this one-time transition tax or pay it. We could, so you could pay it one time or you could pay it over, is it seven years? I, I think it was, it was deferral, over, you know, seven year deferral period. Yeah, seven, that's right. Seven years. And so you'd pay it over seven years, but it affected a number of people in Canada. And I know, I know CBC did some stories on, you know, a person running a hair salon in Ontario and how it affected them happened to be a person, that kind of crap. Yeah. So, so the essential idea and, was they reached into every corporation out there and pulled a chunk out of it, and that was regardless of um, regardless if you'd filed everything properly in the first place, right? Even if you were on side with filings, which most people, which a lot of some business owners weren't, you still lost a chunk of money there for no good reason. That, that's right. And if you had all your money in your company for your retirement things like that, you've got you've got yeah. this tax, and then it's an ongoing effort as well because you've got now again if you've not restructured your affairs then you've got this guilty tax that's, that's now still applicable as well. So, you know, when we have the discussion with clients who are Americans in Canada that are looking to set up a practice or a company, sometimes when you make them aware of the, the way that we tax on the U.S. the Canadian side, it sometimes makes sense just to be a sole prop and just file a good old yep. T2125 and a Schedule C and off to the tax form tax credits there. Or again, pay everything out because that's what the IRS is going to have us do on the U.S. side anyways. There's either that or there's a type of entity that we can utilize in Canada that's unique. It's a hybrid entity from a from a Canada-U.S. perspective. And it started many years ago out of Nova Scotia. It's called an ENSOC, so the Nova Scotia Unlimited Liability Company. Alberta has legislation related to this, does, as does BC. And so if you are a physician or well, a physician is a little bit different because you've got PC issues and things like that. But if you have a company yeah. and you are happy to be an American, you want to get consistent tax treatment in the Canadian side and the U.S. side. So the, so a ULC would be, uh, you'd file a Canadian T2, you basically flow everything out. And on the U.S. side, it'll be a flow through just like it would be an S-Corp or an LLC or yeah, something Yeah, so like exactly get treated like an S-Corp. Okay, <laughs> so we got a little bit deep in the weeds there. I'm going to try to bring it back to some basic personal stuff. And I'm taking some notes on some things I want to specifically address. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions uh, in different areas about how things differ for, for Canadians versus American tax residents. So one of the first big traps we typically find is home ownership in Canada. What's the difference in tax treatment between Canada and the U.S.? A number of years ago, it used to be significant because if you owned a home and you had a mortgage and you had real estate taxes, you could go ahead and deduct the interest on the mortgage for tax purposes and the real estate taxes. A couple of years ago, um, the tax laws were changed. And so most people now in the U.S. may not have the benefit of itemizing deductions any longer. Because when you file a U.S. tax return as a U.S. taxpayer, you can itemize deduction or take what's called a standard deduction. The standard deduction for married couples now is $24,000. So if you don't have mortgage interest, real estate taxes and state taxes and donations and other things that exceed that number, then you're better off to take the standard not. deduction. So, yeah. Yep. So, and, and again, most people don't. Or there's limits on how much you can deduct on a mortgage. If I get a new mortgage right now and it happens to be a million-dollar mortgage, I can only write off interest up to the $750,000 limit. Same, there's some limits yeah. on home equity credit lines as well, too. So right now, we, we talk to clients about, like, is there, is there incentive to going ahead and buying a home and financing it or paying off your mortgage? Because there's no tax benefit any longer on the U.S. side. Of course, there used to be. But then come the time biggest, to sale. Yeah, the, that's the big one. So yeah. you're right ahead of me there. So the big, big, big one is, is that in Canada, obviously, we have a principal residence. We sell it. It's gone up $18 million. We've got no tax burden in Canada all related to that. 
different story on the U.S. side. And this is, this is a problem for those folks. We've had clients like this who happen to be U.S. citizens living in Vancouver. They bought a house for half a million dollars. They sell it for $2 million. What do they get? In Canada, nothing. On the U.S. side, we've got some guidelines that relate to exemptions that, they're available, that are available to them if they meet certain rules. So there's certain requirements that relate to how long do they live in a house for and so on and so forth. But in any event, if they are a U.S. person and their house is preceded in value, they generally will get a $250,000 capital gain exemption. So mm-hmm. if we go ahead back to my example, American couple bought it for $500,000. They sell it for $2 million. They lived in it for at least you know, two out of five years. They're going to get a $500,000 exemption of a capital gain for U.S. purposes, but the net result yeah. is going to be the compensation capital gains. So bottom line, they look at the net profit on that, translate to American dollars, subtract 500000 and everything else is a capital gains tax in the U.S. Correct. Yeah. 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 I've seen that. And, uh, and then because got, of that too, and they, beyond the capital gains tax, they may be exposed to that, to the net investment income tax, the 3.8% tax that would be imposed on gains. Yeah. Dividends. We'll talk about that too. So, I mean, the, the reality is, is that, and I've had this happen too, where I had clients who were planning on downsizing, bought a house in Toronto in the seventies. So you can imagine how little they paid for it. And, you know, we're talking about downsizing. We're like, well, you're both Americans. Let's do the math on this. And by the time they said, you know what, forget it. There's no way during my lifetime, I'm going to will- willfully pay the U S government that well, kind of money. So in, in the back, so here's a solution. Here's an easy solution here. We, when you go back go. to the gift tax stuff. So if we have a U.S. citizen married to a non-citizen and yes. the U.S. citizen has all that gain, we can go ahead and gift the U.S. citizen's interest to the non-U.S. citizen. There is a different gift tax exclusion amount for the non-citizen spouse. It's much higher. But again, in that case, there's going to be a gift. It's going to be a taxable gift, but the 11.58 million exemption is going to grind that down to be nothing. And then the non-citizen spouse is going to own this property, and then they're going to sell it. There'll be no tax result from a U.S. perspective or a Canadian perspective. Filing out a gift tax return. Yep. And your married couple I in Toronto, they can just literally get divorced. Dealt with that. Yeah, they can get divorced. Oh, that's right. <laughs> get divorced. Yeah. Marry somebody else or whatever, you know. That's not going to happen. But nevertheless, it was. Uh, I am literally dealing with that case right now, where we're doing a gift over to the non non U.S. tax resident spouse. Okay, so that's that's on the U.S. side. We touched upon TFSA's a little bit. There's some some debate on mutual funds and ETFs. We're going to skip over that. We're going to focus more on the business owner side. So let's just go over this quickly. So I I basically want to start a business from scratch, and depending on what I do, incorporation may not be a good idea if I'm a U.S. tax resident. Where is that line? Like who? Where does it make sense and where does it not make sense? Well, it's a, it's a good question. It depends on the nature of the industry. Like, like if you're a physician and you do a PC or... Um, so professional services in general, if I'm trying to incorporate as a professional. Yeah. In that particular case, typically, if, if, there's, if there's large amounts of money involved and things like that, we'll probably go ahead and we, want, and we need to formalize it because we've got staff and investments and things like that. We'll probably typically go the, the ULC route. So either a BC ULC, an Alberta ULC, or a Nova Scotia ULC. So we get the, the filter treatment on the, the US side. Outside of that, if you if you go ahead and you know we have many situations where clients will have incorporated a traditional Canadian company, what we just don't have them do is keep stuff in the company. They got to pay everything out in the form of yeah. salary or management fees or whatever. So because what we want to do is they, they can't get away from the requirements to file the 5471, disclose to the IRS what's going on within their company for their financial statements. And then everything that they earn, they're paying out to themselves in the form of some level of, cost, you know, some level of income that's being taxed yep. in Canada on their so personal return eventually. Just clear it out. Just clear it all out. And, and the equalization on foreign tax credit side of things, we've got the 5471. You shouldn't have any guilty issues because you've got nothing that we're leaving in there that's going on a deferred basis. 
So oh. that's generally what we often do. And um, I will say this, I don't do as, as, as much corporate related work for uh, our clients than others in our firm do. But generally, it, it's uh, with some clients here recently, where again, we just went the T2125 route, we've looked at the NSELC route. And again, you have to look at the cost benefit too, okay, this the, the initial burden of having to set up a company, pay a separate, you have a separate set of books that you've got to deal with. Um, mm-hmm. You've got the um, legal cost of which normally is a terrible so thing because so it means something's going on in the background. But this is actually legitimate. <laughs> so, so that said, okay. So, but let's say for all intents and purposes, it does make sense for me to set up a corporation, and I'm because I'm a I'm a large scale widget manufacturer. Basically, really at this point, my filing requirements are different. Is what it comes down to. Yeah. So you're going to have the personal return that you're going to have to file, the 1040 return. Um, you're going to pick up, obviously, the income that you're paying yourself in the form of salary or, or dividends or management fees or whatever. And then you'll have the 5471 form that's part of the 1040 filing. And then you're going to have the results from the 5471. You know, when you look, when the financial statements from your Canadian company and from your T2 are translated over into the 1040 return and on the 5471, then you'll determine whether you've got any deferral of income that's going to be taxed on the guilty side or what we used to, what we call subpart F income, those kinds of things. And again, yeah. that income that's deferred, and here's why you don't want to do that though, because income that you leave in a foreign entity is mm-hmm. taxed the highest marginal rate for U.S. tax purposes, right? So it's, you're not going to get the lower rate, anything that you leave in these foreign entities, because here's what the IRS says. Canada, from the U.S.'s perspective, is an offshore jurisdiction. It's like we're freaking in the Cayman Islands or Turks and Caicos or whatever, right? But we happen to be in oh, Saskatchewan yeah. Oh, yeah. Our tax Alberta. rates make us a really big tax shelter. That's right. Well, you know, I mean, you got Ontario at 53. I mean, there are some people that suggest that, you know, the U.S. is a haven. I mean, you know, if you make more than $200,000 in Ontario, you're, you're at 53%, you know, 53.5% tax rate. Mm-hmm. And, to, you know, in, in the highest tax rate in the U.S. for a married couple filing jointly is $622,000 and you'll pay 37%, right? So there's a, there's a, there is a federally states can get a higher, yeah, yeah, I mean, the thresholds yeah, are much higher. In, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the entire income splitting with the spouse being baked into the system is fantastic. Okay. But one of the big, one of the big detriments to uh, being an American taxpayer when you're a Canadian business owner is one of the nice incentives that they give us in Canada is the ability to utilize something called the lifetime capital gains exemption, which will give us a tax-free portion of the sale up to about 860-ish is it this year, roughly. Mm-hmm. And that's per shareholder. So spouses can also qualify for that as well, potentially. How does the U.S. look upon that when we sell shares of a, of a corporation based in Canada? So they, they don't. So we're like back to our old Prince Rosen's exemption thing, right? So there's things that we can do in Canada that we're going to get as a benefit, and we just won't get them on the U.S. side. Same thing applies if we do, if we crystallize shares or things like that with family members and stuff like that, and we get the benefit of the capital gains exemption. We don't get that from a U.S. perspective. We just get it from a Canadian perspective. So that can certainly be, be, a, be a problem. So that's why going back to an example, if we've got a a married couple where one of the citizens, one of the spouses is not a citizen. You know, it's maybe having again the shares or those kinds of things in the non-citizen spouse's um, hands as opposed to the, uh, I had a situation years ago where we, again, we had that situation, uh, you know, um, a non-citizen married to a citizen spouse and the citizen, you know, citizen spouse, he got, he got paid a salary, but the spouse, the wife, the non-citizen was spouse, the she owner. owned everything in the company. Yeah. Yep. She was the share owner and things like that. Yep. And then you're know, just getting involved in state planning and other kinds of things as well. Yeah. I mean, so the bottom line is, and I think there's been, we've gone the weeds quite a bit on this, 
the reality is, is that if you're going to deal with anyone as a business owner who has an exposure to the American tax code, make sure you get the right help. So, I mean, you and I have both seen it. People don't lend enough credence. People in our industry or elsewhere just don't lend enough credence to just how complicated this can get. And, you know, anytime we come up with a financial planning strategy, it's like, okay, this works here. Does it work there? And then what is this piece of legislation in the middle called the, the cross-border agreement? Does it even come close to addressing it? And there's plenty of stuff that I see get sold over here, like insurance policies or whatever else, that maybe don't qualify the same way as they do in the U.S. and leads to all kinds of complications and issues. So, It's, it's a really good point. I mean, uh, you know, right now, the prescribed uh, rate for spousal loans is going down to 1% mm-hmm. July 1st, so I'm told. So yep. does it does it make sense to do that when you've got a an American couple or a mixed marriage, an American marriage to a non-citizen spouse? And so I had a client in that situation reach out to me with a significant portfolio that we manage saying, listen, how can we haven't done this? Like, wh- why did we not do this? Because I mean, I, my friends are doing it. Well, it makes sense for your traditional friends to do it. And so, you know, his friends are saying, well, I set up a trust and blah, blah, blah. But here's the problem. The problem is that if you loan money to your spouse who's a, who's a U.S. citizen, the loan that you've now given to your spouse that's considered to be U.S. situs for estate tax purposes. So now he's, his yep. non-estate tax situs asset, along with the U.S. shares he owns, is now going to be greater. So we have to look at that. Plus, there's some filing requirements that the spouse, the U.S. spouse, has to file with the, you know, with the IRS, the W-8 then, to, on behalf of the citizen, uh, the uh, Canadian spouse. And then we have to make sure that there's enough investment in income that's coming out to, to, to offset the interest. There's that. But then it's like getting a trust involved. That's a whole nother. Oh, God, uh, no. Trust law in Canada, the U.S. are just, they don't yeah. line up. Yeah. They just, so it's like, it's it doesn't, terrible. it doesn't work as well for you as it does for other, other folks. So the kind of traditional planning that, that we often hear people think about doing or wanting to do in a cross-border context, it doesn't work as well. And it may not work yeah. at all. And um, some people like to play in the gray zone. We've had this discussion before, you know, what can we get away with? And, um, you know, clients need to be aware of the pros and cons. I I say the good, the bad, and the ugly of of some of the things that that they might be exposed to. But it works on both sides of the board. It's the same concern because, I mean, the number of times I have uh, clients who vacation in Florida come back and say, I went to this seminar and, you know, they talked about moving money into moving the the property into this trust so it can avoid, you know, probate. And it's like, okay, that's nice because you can move into that trust in the U.S. without any tax implications. But the second you do that from a Canadian tax planning standpoint, you have now triggered the capital gain. And yes, congratulations, you you did a non-taxable event in the U.S. but a taxable event in Canada. Like it's, it can be a real big mess if you don't if you don't get advice for someone who understands both sides of the border, not just one. So but they got a free start. lunch or breakfast when they went when they went to the seminar in Florida, though. For the state playing trust. There you go. Yeah. Uh, I think the best excuse I ever heard was, uh, was it, well, oh, I don't give tax planning advice for Canada. It's like, okay, that's, that's fantastic. That's just fantastic. What, what a great cop out. So let's talk about why it's important to get compliant in general. Like what, you know, besides the fact that maybe, and people, I like a lot of people took this for granted because realistically, this was kind of something that started to really, they started to crack down on or sort of around 2008. Prior to that, you have people who most of their lives had just kind of ignored this issue, but it's becoming more and more of an issue. So Tell me, you know, why people need to become compliant and what their concerns should be if they don't. Okay. So, you know, when you mentioned in 2008, so way back when, you know, when, when UBS and a number of the Swiss banks and other banks were getting caught helping clients, Americans hide money and be evasive, that's when the, you know, the crap hit the fan, right? So out of that came a number of 
programs that the IRS initially established to try to encourage clients to, to get uh, to get compliance, uh, U.S. citizens to get compliance. The offshore voluntary disclosure programs, and, and initially there were some yucky penalties, and, and it was kind of it was this, a scarier program. And over the years, they they've really kind of softened up a little bit, so that the person who cut uh, who happens to be American and hasn't filed returns, they've made his or her ability to get back into the program a, a lot easier. And so what we now have is this, we have for the last number of years is the streamlined disclosure program. That's the easiest, pain, most painless program to get involved in, to get compliant. And then we'll talk about why it's important to get compliant. So in that particular program, the requirement for an individual who qualifies for the streamlined disclosure program is they have to go back and file the last three years of their, three years of their U.S. return. And then they've got to file six years of foreign bank account reports. So many people know them as FRs, which is an acronym, but really the form is the FinCEN 114. FIN stands for Financial Crimes and Enforcement Network. It's the part of Treasury, U.S. Treasury, that basically just you know checks. It's almost like our T1135s that we have in Canada, per se, to a certain extent. They have to go back and file the last six years of their FRs, their FinCEN 114s, and then three years of tax returns. In most cases, Jason, most Canadian, most Americans in Canada, they will pay no tax because they'll have the okay. form earned income exclusion that they can use to offset that. So as long as they don't have, if I look at currency rates from last year, if they didn't make more than $142,800 in Canadian employment income, not other forms of income, but just employment income, they will qualify generally in most cases if they live a year or longer in Canada for that VAT. And if they didn't, yeah. if they had money exceeding that, the level of tax in Canada generally is higher than we pay on the U.S. side. We're going to get a foreign yeah. tax credit we can utilize on the U.S. side. Exactly. So, That's an important key piece to so, make is that a dollar yeah. paid in Canada when you file in the U.S. and you're non-resident in the U.S. is the equivalent from their standpoint is a dollar after conversion paid in the U.S. So therefore, you don't pay both except for a couple of weird little places. Where and the that tax income tax, the Obamacare sur, yeah, the Obamacare sur tax, the net investment income tax. Yeah. So there's this other tax we, we can get caught, which is if you've got significant amounts of investment income, passive income, there's a 3.8% sur tax that's imposed on you if you're single, when you're, you're just a gross income is over 124, if you're married and your gross income is over 250, you, you can get you get nailed with that tax. And that's not creditable in, in Canada. So it's important to get compliant. The reason why you also want to get compliant is that we just had this whole COVID-19 challenge, the passing of the CARE Act, the CARES Act, uh, in the U.S. Yep. as of a few months ago, there's a stimulus check of $1,200 U.S. That's, that's being sent out there. And guess what? If you're an American oh, living right. in Canada and your yeah. income's not over a certain threshold, which is effectively if you're married filing separately or if you are single and your adjusted risk income doesn't exceed $75,000 without taking the, the foreign or income exclusion, you're supposed to get a $1,200 check. My son's waiting for his. So when he gets his, I'll let you know. USD. So there's that. Plus, interestingly enough, I saw this from another practitioner the other day and I thought it was kind of interesting. He was sort of suggesting that the IRS has given these folks the ability to, to come back in from the cold for such a long period of time, and that they try to make it as painless as possible. At what point are they going to say, enough? We're now going to say, listen, if you get in after this date, even if you have no tax going, we're going to impose a penalty for late filing, and we're going to make things difficult. And he made an interesting argument. And the argument was, okay, so a number of years ago, we also had the passing of FATCA, the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act. Yep. And this is under the Obama administration, and I wrote a lot about this when it, when it came out. So the purpose of that was to say, hey, if you happen to have accounts that's outside the United States, we want to be aware of it, and we're not going to have you tell us about it. We're going to make your bank or your insurance company or an investment dealer tell us about it. And we, we have a bit of a break in Canada because in Canada, unlike other countries, the UK and Australia and other countries, jurisdictions, the banks, we, we have a number of, of, of accounts that would be exempt from that disclosure by the bank. So registered accounts basically are not disclosed, TFSA is not disclosed, but traditional accounts are. So 
Now that FATCA has been around for a while and that data is being sent from by CRA directly, so the banks provide them to CRA, CRA now sends it directly to the IRS, then that information is out there now. But over the last three years, there's a requirement now for all of the banks to make sure that they have a social security number on file with for any U.S. persons in the W-9, right? IRS yep. W-9 form. So this article I read was interesting saying, listen, the U.S. government just went ahead and, and they have these massive programs to help people through this pandemic. And so we got trillions of dollars of, of debt that we've created. And we need to pay that back. Mm-hmm. And to Americans that live outside of Canada and aren't compliant, we're going to get it from you. Okay. So we've, we've been easy on you for a while, but we're not going to yeah. let you get away with it. So there's the, the, the thing. So the suggestion was, you know what? Enforcement might be a bit more important. And if you are late, a penalty might be imposed because you're, you're late because we gave you all this this rope and you just let but it I, mean, I think it was two years ago. I can't remember which conference I was at. And they, they had brought in someone from the IRS to basically talk about you know, cross-border filing issues and all that sort of stuff. And he very politely slid in. And by the way, this program, don't count on it being around forever. Yeah. I think it was the step in Toronto, maybe, that uh, I think, I think we're so. both I think, at. I think yeah. we all simultaneously took a deep breath and went, uh-oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> let's get on that. So, yeah, it, it's true. But the other issue, too, is the, the, the likelihood of being audited by the IRS is really, really small. The budget's been reduced significantly. And, and then it, yeah. it's harder to be chasing Jason in Ontario, who owes money, than it is to get somebody in, in your backyard in Louisiana kind of things. But that being said, if you've got accounts in the U.S., that could get liens put on them or things like that, or they can they can force CRA to go ahead yeah. and grab the money from you. Those are the kinds of things that we often hear about. Or See, I've got an interesting about. view on this with my eye on the tech sector, because I know that a lot of these disclosures, these foreign disclosures, they've, they've been overwhelmed by like FACTA forms and everything else. And I've heard stories from sitting in warehouses and that they'll get to them eventually. And people are like, oh, well, it's going to take a long time to get to those forms. Yeah, there's this thing called machine learning that is eventually just going to suck those all up and spit out the result very quickly. And I have to think that, yeah, you know what? You have to disclose all this stuff. And, and for the record, there's so much information sharing going on between financial institutions around the world now. And just even when you cross the border, it's all it's all cataloged. It's a matter of time before they feed all this into a giant system and spit out the offenders. And I would think that you want to do whatever you can to not be one of those offenders, because frankly, right now, it's like looking for a bit of a needle in a haystack. In the future, it's going to be pushing a button. I mean, I agree with you. We talked a while ago about immigration and tax and how they're not sort of, they don't sleep together. But that being said, yeah. you know, a number of years ago, I think two years ago, the IRS has a program now that if you are renewing your passport, you've got to sort of indicate whether you're compliant for U.S. purposes or not. So that's one of the questions that's being asked there. If the answer is no, where does that information go? And secondly, if you do decide to apply for a passport or get a passport, if you have a tax, I believe it's exceeds $50,000, then they won't get grant you your passport too, sort of thing. So yeah, I mean, you know, Big Brother's truly upon us and, and they need revenue and where can they get that, you know? And, oh yeah. And, yeah, and the other thing too people is- people outside the country aren't as many voters as the number of people in the country, that's for sure. Well, and like my dad used to always say, at least at the estate tax level, the dead make a very poor lobby. So let's get money from them. So if you are a Canadian yeah. or if you're an American in Canada and you haven't been compliant and you happen to own some U.S shares, you know, let's say Disney or whatever. And is the transfer agent going to go ahead and liquidate those shares and give them to your beneficiary upon your passing? No, they're going to wait and wait for a clearance certificate from the IRS to ensure that there's no estate tax at all. So there's those kinds of things we have to be cognizant of as well. Yep. So before we close out, I want to discuss uh, one other thing, and that's renunciation. So let's talk about what happens. What's the difference between when I have a green card or when I'm actually considered a citizen? What happens to um, if I just say, you know what, I'm fed up with this. I just I just want to separate the ties, and that's the end of it. 
Okay, so I can tell you personal, my personal experience story because I had a green card. So many people think, geez, Terry, I thought you were a citizen. I should have been, could have been, I just got lazy, never did. So I moved down to the U.S. during, in 1979, my last year of high school. My mom, mom was a U.S. citizen. My dad hated the, the tax environment in the late 70s and the weather. And so we all moved down so on a green card. And so after, in our case, after three years, I could have applied for citizenship. Again, got lazy, never did, and had my green card for 15 years. I married a U.S. citizen um, who was born in the U.S., uh, my first wife, but was raised in Calgary and me, my late twin sister. So we, we met that way. And, and uh, I just continued to, to have my green card. And then there's some family challenges that we had. My daughter got sick and we decided to, when she's quite young, we decided to move back to, uh, to Canada. And so we moved back in 1995 and I continued to maintain my green card. But after 9-11, that was much more difficult to do. So mm-hmm. on the 23rd of September, 2001, I was asked to, to, to do a, a television program for, um, for Edward Jones in St. Louis. And I knew that that was the day that they were going to pull my green card. And so I went to immigration really, I went to the airport really or like three hours before my flight. And I went in there and that was the day. And they were, they were really jerks about it too, to be honest with you. So I had to fill an I-407. So like form. The, the, the DOH was, was difficult. Give, give me a break. Oh my, uh, yeah. Cause they're like, yeah, they, they were difficult that day for me. Like, you know, Terry, yeah. you had 15 years to do this. Why didn't you do it? Blah, blah, blah kind of thing. So I, so I got pulled. And so because I gave up from their perspective, the greatest gift in the world, there have been times when I've traveled where I've been thrown into secondary and asked questions and all that kind of stuff. Now, I have an E2 visa. I'm married to a U.S. citizen. I could get a green card back. But right now, for what works for me, that's what we've done. So um, all my kids are citizens, dual citizens. But if you have a green card and you've been out of the U.S. for longer than a year, you can't demonstrate that you've been in the U.S. on a consistent basis, they will pull your green card. And in fact, if you have a green card living in Canada, there's an obligation to, continue to be treated as a U.S. person for tax purposes. Because effectively, your status doesn't end, so I'm told, until you've abandoned your green card, until you get that I-407, okay? So it's important that people be aware of that. There's a risk of obviously physically losing your green card, and of course, the ongoing tax requirement that you have to fulfill because you still have a green card, you still look like a U.S. tax resident. So there's some pros and cons to that. On the renunciation side, so renunciation is something that I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of clients about over the years, but very few have actually taken the steps to do that because they they worry about the prospects of they be, be, being able to either Spend time in the U.S. from a, as a snowbird, maybe mm-hmm. move there in the future, or spend time with family there. So yeah, you are giving have, something up, like that, that. That does give you rights. Like it's not just something you do that on a whim. Correct. And there are some tax implications that could be imposed upon your giving up again the greatest gift in the world from their yep. perspective. And so on the renunciation side, there's a couple things. So if your net worth is greater than two million dollars then you are going to face an expatriation tax that's going to be imposed on you. And that's similar to a, like a deemed disposition tax that we'd have in Canada. So there's two levels of tax that would be imposed on you. So if your net worth is more than $2 million, or if you haven't filed tax returns for the previous five years, so let's say that's a, totally exclude the net worth calculation. But if you've been somebody who hasn't filed returns in five years, and you have net worth of, let's say, $500,000, you would be called a covered expatriate. You have to, you're going to face these same expatriation tax obligations as mm-hmm. would a, a person with a two million dollar net worth. So the two levels of tax that would be imposed would be a what we call a mark to market tax, or let's just call it a deemed disposition tax for our listeners. But what happens is the IRS is going to it's going to say we're going to have you sell all of your worldwide assets except your tax deferred assets at fair market paper, value. Yeah, you're not you know, actually yeah. selling it, but it's on paper. It's as if you sold it. But every year we, there's a it goes up for inflation, but there's also a very generous exemption that the IRS gives us 
on capital gains. It's some, I think it's just north of $725,000. So there's a capital gains exemption that you're going to get first related to that. So for many people, unless you've got some large unrealized capital gains, it may not be an issue. But what will be, what could be an issue is there's an, an ordinary income tax that would be imposed on your registered assets and your tax deferred or deferred compensation assets. So okay. if you've got an RSP or a RIF in Canada and you go ahead and renounce, that will be subject to this ordinary income tax on the U.S. side. So that's something to be aware of. And I would so say important. be even more careful when it's a defined benefit pension because I've seen that happen as well. And you know, with a defined benefit pension, it's not like you could cash out some of it to pay off the tax bill. Right? You're still going to get this tax bill. Yeah, and the same thing on the estate side too. You've got to sort of you know commute. But in any event, so so the first thing is we got to quantify whether there's, there's going to be tax exposure because the year that you do file, you've got to file what's called an 8854 form, which is a financial statement making them aware of what your financial assets look like as of the as the point that you expatriate. And then, you know, you're going to, when you cross the border, typically sometimes immigration officers might ask questions of why you're doing it, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, more people are doing this because they want to get out of the compliance requirements and the headaches that we've talked about earlier. And because of that, I mean, the people that do expatriate every quarter, your name goes into a, into a federal register. So you can see who, who expatriated every quarter. You can get those mm-hmm. people's names. Wow, um, really? It's crazy. And uh, <laughs> who is Mark Zuckerberg's buddy? Um, oh, um, Eduardo Severin. Alex yeah, what's it, this? Whatever, yeah. So he was one of the sort of became more public a number of years ago, and that's why they changed these rules now because they he got away it. before he paid capital gains, didn't he? Uh, yeah. So <laughs> he, got Facebook, he got Facebook shares for yeah before he went public. He went to Philippines, Singapore, sorry, where there's no capital gains tax. So so sovereign can't so he so he can't come back to the U.S. because of these. And so yeah, I'm so, sure he's living a very comfortable lifestyle regardless. <laughs> I'm sure he is, and he's using Zoom like we are to talk communicate that's with people it. in the U.S. or whatever, right? That's it. Well, Terry, we got uh, we got pretty heavy and deep, but quite honestly, it's a pretty heavy and deep subject. And quite honestly, um, like I said, I think if you get nothing else from this podcast, if you're an American living in Canada, A, you need the proper advice from a tax and financial planning standpoint. And B, if you're a American living in Canada who owns a business, you really need it and get compliant because... Um, in my opinion, it's only a matter of time. But that's that's just that's just me. Anyway, so Terry, thank you very much. Uh, where can people find you? So a couple places. So they can email me at terry at cardinalpointwealth.com. So T-E-R-R-Y at cardinalpointwealth.com. Or they can check out our website. It's just www.cardinalpointwealth.com. It's where they can find us. Fantastic. Thank you yet again. Good, sir. Okay. Thanks, Jason. Take care. And that was my interview with Terry Ritchie of Cardinal Point. As you can see, we got pretty technical and pretty deep, but then again, this is a incredibly deep and technical subject matter altogether. As always, this has been uh, Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners. If you enjoyed this podcast, please review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud. For more episodes, go to jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you.